In my personal story growing up, you know, herbs were around. There's cultural knowledge. White people can have a depth of knowledge, but they're not ever going to have like a really intuitive relationship with the culture. What they can do and what I can do is to just have appreciation, look at it with curiosity. Even like my own mom, who's like straight, you know, she's out of China. She completely 100% grew up with this heritage. She doesn't know everything, you know. It depends on the person. Hey, Immigrantly family, welcome back to another episode, which I cannot wait for you to hear all the way through. I hope you do, right? I felt so rejuvenated and inspired after talking to our guest. But before I introduce our today's guest, I wanted to share something. So today I went for my first COVID vaccine and I have never been this excited about getting a needle stuck in my arm. I am so humbled and I was emotional while I was getting the vaccine. And to be honest, I feel like having access to COVID vaccine is a privilege that many don't have around the globe. So please consider taking your vaccine this is not just for you, it's for people around you, for their safety and their health as well. So now let's talk about our today's guest. She is one of those people who seem so in tune with themselves, their emotional states and sense of being. You know what I'm talking about, right? The ones that emanate calm and confidence. Well, Irisa Shang, founder of Inner Maid and a yogi practitioner, sees mindfulness and self-created potential as powerful paths to healing and growth. And this is what I love about the work that she does. Her philosophy comes from her family and Eastern traditions and remedies. Isn't that wonderful? She's every bit creative and driven, someone who offers incredible attention and renewed views to how we take care of our bodies and what agency we have as individuals. So Irisa, thank you so much for coming on Immigrantly. And as you and I were talking about this earlier, this is my first time in the studio after almost a year. So if there are any glitches, just ignore it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's wild. So let's talk about Inner Maid. I want to start there. And I have somewhat taken a deep dive into your brand. And I am so impressed with it. So what I like about your brand is how you bring simple ingredients. And it's based on Eastern traditions. But we see a lot of brands out there that are doing the same thing, right? There are small boutique brands that have focused on Eastern traditions, Eastern medicine, and holistic health practices. What do you think sets Inner Made apart from all the other brands that we have out there? There's so many brands out there. I'm well aware of the landscape. And I think I don't take a very overt position with the Eastern culture, but because hmm. I have an Eastern background, a lot of the narrative and a lot of the messaging and intention is going to feel different. I would say majority of the brands that are out there are not owned by Eastern 
you know, like East Asians or mm. even Asians, like they're mostly white owned. But it's a beautiful space because it's a lot of women. And I think everyone's trying to find like their take on where they can just help people. Obviously, supplements or nutrition or herbs are like really powerful in what they do for you. But for Intermade, like it's been like a brand that I think is trying to speak more on the subtle philosophy of Eastern wellness. And I love that. That's something that I feel we are missing in that ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I am flabbergasted by how lifestyle blogger, say in California, could have the same depths of knowledge as, let's say, somebody who has been passed on that information through generations and has learned from the master, right? We see that with a lot of Eastern practices. We see that with acupuncture. We see that with Ayurveda. Now, I grew up in Pakistan, so I can relate to Ayurvedic practices. And I knew what benefits accrue when you have turmeric in milk, right? So all those things were basically woven in to our everyday lifestyle. How do you think white people who are practicing holistic medicine can honor those traditions uh, while benefiting from it? Actually, I think I can empathize with them because I don't identify as like a completely, you know, fluid or like literate in my own culture. And mm. this is very personal, but Intermade was like a bridge for me to access it because I felt like in my personal story growing up, you know, herbs were around. There's cultural knowledge that is woven, like you said, like when our stomach would hurt, our mom would tell us to drink hot water. Right. You know, that's not something that's like, I've never heard that spoken in like any American context, right? Huh. But that's something that like all Asian people know. I think white people can have a depth of knowledge, but they're not ever going to have like a really intuitive relationship with the culture. But what they can do and what I can do, because I don't even feel like I have like complete agency over my own Chinese culture, is to just have appreciation, look at it with curiosity, like don't ever feel like it's completely known to you. Because I know for a fact that even like my friends or like my own mom, who's like straight, you know, she's out of China. She completely 100% grew up with this heritage. She doesn't know everything. You know, it depends on the person. You mentioned intuitive knowledge. How does it benefit a brand like yours? How does your intuitive knowledge benefit Innermade in what it is right now? It's a few levels. Like part of it is just feeling like emotional agency like hmm. that can be different for a lot of different people like my friends who are immigrants like we're all at different places with how we feel about our other identity you know the other or like how we hold these like layers in ourselves so I think it's just more going back to like how we can have appreciation and have this like healthy relationship because I don't mind that a lot of white people are in the space. But I think a decent amount of people definitely don't look at culture at all. You know, for example, I practice yoga. I'm not Indian, but maybe because I'm Asian, you know, I have a little bit more of like a fluency with like a cultural tint to yoga. So for me, like 
when I think about the institution of yoga, there's always a context of Ayurveda. There's a context of Hinduism. You know, there's a lot of layers to that. And I don't think that that's, (laughs) I don't see that around in the yoga world, which I've been in for a long time. Do you think we can improve these spaces or make them more inclusive by focusing more on people who've been originators of that culture or who've lived with those traditions? We talk about yoga, we talk about Eastern medicine, um, traditional Chinese medicine. We can have those spaces as integrative ecosystems. Yeah, that's really important. But it's like you're simultaneously trying to uplift like those minority or because like even in yoga, I would say in America, Indian or South Asian people are the minority, you know, Mm. in a yoga class. I'm also in a way confused as to should we be gatekeeping these traditions at the same time? I don't want to gatekeep traditions, right? Oh, I think those feelings are completely valid. Hmm. That That's your intuition in your gut, knowing that this proportion that you're seeing, this power proportion isn't correct. It's not in the right place. And that's your body having like a somatic reaction to what isn't right. I think it's fine that it works for you. It makes you feel safe. It makes you feel like authentic to, you know, learn under someone who's South Asian. And that's perfectly fine. I think because like from since I'm not South Asian, maybe for me, I'm almost like half white, if that makes sense. We're all guests. That's how I would see it, right? We're all guests to another culture if it's not our own. Arisa, I want to come back to your brand, Innermade. So herbal remedies were a consistent part of your childhood. And through your grandmother, you grew up both an understanding and I would say an appreciation for its healing powers. Now, I have noticed something else on your Instagram. You have these graphic cards um, on your IG platform that speak to mindfulness and self-care and spiritual growth and I have one that I love but I'm going to reveal it in the end. (laughs) Uh, Was this born out of your childhood relationship to your grandmother or did this interest come later on? It came later on because my heritage has always been sort of like an elusive relationship to me. I think this is this may be kind of a common immigrant experience, but when you are divorced from your one context and you're brought into another, you're always going to feel a little bit alienated from everything. You know, mm. it just like most of growing up isn't nonverbal. And most of like, for example, these herbal experiences I had were not verbal. They weren't intellectual, right? They weren't explained in ABC, the scientific benefits of why it's good. It's kind of like tonal, you know, it's kind of strict, (laughs) like it's very familiar and everything you associate with your family. So I think I always look at it from an intuitive context. Mm. And I think for me, like Intermade became an entire accumulation of all the practices I carried with me, informal and formal. And that led to mindfulness. Um... Just like disclaimer, I'm not an expert in any of this. I have a yoga practice 
and I've kind of just begun a formal meditation practice. And I'm just like such a beginner, you know, at this. And because I'm a visual artist, um, I express myself through these means. And it's kind of been my way of just sharing with people. I mean, initially, I didn't even imagine an Instagram. That Instagram came about because of the pandemic. I didn't even have it before. Oh, so you didn't have Instagram before that? No, yeah. Wow. How old were you when you moved to the U.S.? I was six. You were six. Mm -hmm. You were still very little, right? You probably started kindergarten here then. Yeah, I started kindergarten here and... English was picked up relatively fast. I didn't have to speak French for that long. So I think it was kind of like a blip. Like, I don't speak any French now. They're just home videos that I see this like, <laughs> little girl that's supposed to be me screaming French. But I think I adapted pretty quickly. And then we ended up in, like, what is now, I would identify where I grew up, Lexington, Massachusetts. And that's a whole, that's an immigrant town. In Lexington, if people don't know, it has like huge American history, right? It's where the Minuteman and Paul Revere called the British were coming. And so a lot of immigrants are attracted to that town because of its prestige, because of that very historical, like white, prestigious brand. And it has great schools, so it attracts a lot of Asian immigrant families and I grew up with a lot of Asians, but I grew up in a very white space. What was it like growing up in a white space? Lexington, because it wasn't my only place, um, I'd say generally it's always a little bit scary. You know, it's very mm. isolating. I think of all the places, Lexington felt the most, it felt the most kind. Like I felt like kids were very... You know, they were not very racially biased and they were able to kind of do their own thing. It was a really privileged place in that way. Mm. Like there was not a lot of bullying and people really cared about academia. So you could kind of just like blend in, like melt into academia. It's so interesting you say that because we live in a predominantly white neighborhood in suburbs of New York in Westchester County. I've had conversations with my daughters, my older daughter. I feel like she resents us for living there or having lived there for so long because they grew up in that town, right? They were very young when we moved there. They were born in Denver. And she thinks that her life experiences are not as diverse and as rich because she grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. We've had these conversations about why we chose that place. And again, great schools, good neighborhood. But sometimes I feel in the process, we forget what our kids are really craving for. And that's to have people who look like them, have those same experiences. And I want to tie this to something else. Now, when we talk about your brand. And I keep on going back to your brand because I feel it is so connected to who you are. And that's what I love about it. Inamid's story and brand ties a lot to strength and nourishment. That mm -hmm. is your mantra. How much do you believe family and familial connections play into that personal strength and nourishment that you bring to your brand? Because as a South Asian, I know how important familial ties are to Eastern cultures. 
It's so important. But my personal story is that I had a really fractured relationship with my family because Mm. we held so much trauma as a family. It was a very, my childhood was very violent at times. Um, It was very chaotic and very painful. And Mm. I think in my, I always had a sense of urgency from like my teenage years onward into my 20s that this was something I really wanted to address. And I never lost hope that my parents would become better people or become more, it's not better, but like learned, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're not aware of their traumas, but they they held and still hold like really painful memories of like they grew up in an era of China that wasn't safe and, or they witnessed their direct parents and grandparents um, not be safe like be killed by neighboring countries or have, you know, civil war because at the time China went through a cultural revolution that Mm -hmm. bled into their childhood and then their adulthood. So that affected, that entire history affects all Chinese people. So I sometimes joke with my, you know, Asian friends, like every single Chinese person is like really, really traumatized and or has inherited this generational trauma And it's taken so long for me to have any voice, even in writing, because I think so much of experiencing trauma is nonverbal. It's very fragmenting. Arisa, when you say trauma, can you put it in perspective for us? What do you mean by that? I'm talking about traumatic events that happened to you or that you witnessed that made you feel unsafe. And because of that experience, your brain and your mental states have physiologically changed. So for me, that comes in the form of anxiety. Mm. Um, It comes in the form of many varieties of anxiety, like performance anxiety or feeling just like very low self-esteem and low self-acceptance. And this isn't something that, you know, my parents who are wonderful people and strong and I see all of that greatness it's not to say that they did anything on purpose but it's just that a lot of us have traumatic imprints that we have to then deal with you know as like adults like frankly speaking I feel like I walk around the street and I see every person as like kind of a a little child or like we all have parts of you know child like qualities that we carry as like baggage that probably aren't healthy I guess there are certain cultures that don't verbalize those emotions as well as others do. I've always been an anxious person growing up. I can't place as to why and how. And sometimes I feel like it's taken me so long to talk about my anxiety. I feel guilty talking about it because I am like, I am so privileged. I have so much to be thankful for. So why am I even talking about my anxiety? Because that's like such an irrelevant thing, given all that's happening. But what people don't realize is that there's this internal struggle that people go through. Do you experience digital eye strain from too much blue light exposure from digital screens? Baxter blue glasses are not your average frames. 
these blue light lenses filter 80% of the highest energy blue light, eliminating 99% of glare. The past year, we've all been glued to our devices more than ever. As a podcaster, I spent a lot of time working on my laptop from timestamping, recording, pre-post-production work to social media campaigns. Our exposure to digital light has soared and our eyes and our sleep are suffering as a result. And I can vouch for that. Baxter Blue is also a force for good and provides a pair of reading glasses for someone in need for every pair sold. Isn't that wonderful? This is eyewear built for our digital age and Baxter Blue is giving our listeners, immigrantly listeners, 10% off your next purchase of blue light, sleep or kids glasses. Click the link in our show notes for your exclusive discount. This is the sign you have been waiting for to invest in blue light glasses. We know you will love your Baxters and we know that you will feel the difference. So I want to tie this to your graphic cards because I mentioned in the beginning one of your cards really, really spoke to me. And let me read it. The greatest gift you can give yourself is permission. It can take a whole lifetime. So it's best to start early and get comfortable. It can take countless rejections from people you love, people you respect, and even people you don't like at all to realize on day that no one holds the rules but you. Not only did this resonate with how I was feeling in that moment, but it caused me to think about how as a woman of color, uh, a mother and someone who inhabits so many different spaces, where I am right now, how subordinate I am at times, and how do I give myself permission? Because to me, giving yourself permission seems almost like a luxury. That is very relatable. I think every Asian person relates to this in some extent because like it feels, I think it's that quality that it's a luxury, like you don't deserve this. And I think that comes really to being critical of yourself and not feeling like you deserve something more. Because actually, I think one of the ways you should start is by hearing this, and you can hear this from me or you can hear this from anyone that, you know, you respect, you do deserve that. And that's part of it. And you just have to hold that. And you hold that feeling and you hold that in yourself. Um, and I wrote that to remind myself because it's not easy and pretty much I forget every day. So Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> and now that you and I are talking about this, I can see why you would write this. But I feel like it is such a powerful message. And I'm sure it, res- it has or it resonates with so many people. Let's talk about what's happening right now with regards to COVID. Has COVID affected your practice in self-cultivation and how you view yourself? How has that impacted you, if at all? Yeah, it really has. Yoga was my first 
or maybe not my first, but yoga was one of my earliest formal practices. And by formal practice, I kind of mean under the tradition of like there's um, regiment, Mm -hmm. right? There's discipline, Mm -hmm. there's a teacher, and there's somewhat of a path, although doesn't have to be a specific shape. So my first practice was obviously my creative practice when I went to art school. And then I would say my second practice was then yoga. And when COVID hit, I definitely just like lost my yoga practice. And many practitioners I know have it because we don't have access to our community anymore. We can't go into the studio. So we can't be there to have that environmental regularity. So we had to. The connection, I think the just seeing all the people, you know, it's very motivating and very comforting, very soothing. So our yoga teacher told us basically that we're all going to be building a new practice from scratch. This isn't Mm. your same practice anymore. And that's how I've treated it since COVID. And it took me, I think, like a good six to eight months to build up back my yoga practice Mm. because it was just hard to do it and be motivated and but I think for my creative practice, it's been really beneficial to have the space. So how do you envision post-COVID mindfulness practices? How are they going to evolve in your opinion? If we're looking at the entire context, you know, more than COVID has just happened, right? There's mm-hmm. been an entire cultural awakening to right. racial biases and problems. Yeah of like so many fronts and continuing. And I think with that, everyone has up-leveled in their literacy, at least with mental health to start, Mm. cultural knowledge, and maybe even like I would hope like some spiritual intimacy. Because I think in times of pain, like you're reminded in a really intuitive way that we're here to experience and hold on to, you know, everything good that we know. And this is definitely relatable, I think, to anyone who's gone through some trauma Mm -hmm. and healed some trauma or people who have gone through grief, you know. Mm -hmm. And this is a collective experience of that. So we will all, you know, this is the silver lining, but we will all come out of this with a little bit more literacy, Mm -hmm. I believe. Arisa, when we talk about collective practices like traditional Chinese medicine and holistic remedies, they connect mind, body, and energy, right? And they look at different bodily systems as a collective entity where each system is interacting with the other and is impacted by the other. But when we look at traditional, conventional medicine in the U.S., which is peer-reviewed, it's based on randomized experiments. Um, There is some pushback towards holistic medicine, right? How do you confront that criticism? And what do you think people don't understand about holistic medicine in the U.S., especially those who believe in evidence-based science? Yeah, well, I deal with this a lot. And I think that's related to the patriarchy and the rational in that the patriarchy instills in us that there is a superior 
way to do something or a superior way to think. And that would be the rational, the logical, and the mechanical. And that's how they treat our bodies or you know, it's not just bodies, but we're people, right? We're, right. we're bodies <laughs> with experiences. And frankly, no one understands the mind that well. Like neurology is very new, very exciting, yeah. right, in that world. And even as we continue this, all they've done is kind of like slowly gained research with like serious technology that, oh, mindfulness is pretty, pretty legitimate. <laughs> like, okay, but, you know, you could have learned that from any other softer context. So my take is that when you take a softer context, a feminine mm. approach, and that was the origin of inner made, because mm. it's this, it was a reactionary name to the word self-made, where it is like uh. rational, externalized on paper, objective success. Wow. And I'm talking yeah. about inner work. I'm talking about invisible work, you know, things that make the quality of your life better, not the quantity, right? So in that, like, there will be more of an integration. I think just because over time, if something works, it will stay. And I have no doubt that holistic practice is here to stay because it's been here for thousands of years. Exactly. It's been in all different cultures and worked on in different branches. And I think that I would encourage those people to not be afraid. Like, I, I understand academics. I feel like I grew up with them my entire life. And they shouldn't be afraid and they should recognize that you are a body with completely irrational feelings and irrational mm. biases and everything. And because of that, you're always going to be enmeshed in this not tangible, spiritual and emotional manner, no matter how you want to ignore it. That's so true. But I have one criticism of holistic medicine, and it has nothing to do with how it's practiced in Asian societies. It's become trendy. And anything that becomes trendy in the U.S. becomes expensive. It's gentrified. Not everybody has access to it. And I'm sure that's not what the originators of these practices intended. How do we make it accessible? If somebody wants to experience that mindfulness and if they have to pay like 50 bucks for like a small bottle, it is not accessible to a lot of people. Insurance doesn't cover it. I know health insurance covers it in California, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> not in New York because I go for acupuncture and my insurance doesn't cover acupuncture, which is unfortunate. Now I can afford to pay it out of pocket and I'm privileged that way, but there are many who aren't. So what do you say to that? How do you make it accessible? And what role do you think you can play in that? I think that I want people to feel like we're not going to treat it like another institution because this is a country full of institutions, right? Mm. Even acupuncture, I have a friend who's going to school to become an acupuncturist. Even those people are still treating it like another institution. Mm. Yoga has become an institution. And these are things that, like you were saying, they should be very accessible, right? right. It will be different depending on your own skills and your own interests. For me, I would take the side of don't be afraid to have real agency in exploring the knowledge mm. and starting to see with an open mind what is herbs. Because my product, you know, it, it, it's under the category of what you're saying, a $50 bottle, right? Mm. So it's not the least expensive thing. So I would say to that, 
one of the greatest ingredients in that is Camellia sinensis. And that's just green tea. Mm-hmm. You know, green tea has all polyphenols as catechins as so many benefits, mm-hmm. so many antioxidants. And my grandpa, who just drank, you know, copious amounts of green tea his whole life, <laughs> was like strong as an ox. And he, that's really like his only thing that he believed was nutritious for him in that capacity. Mm-hmm. So I think start to see all food because food is a total gradation of herbs. Mm-hmm. Or at least that's how I see it. Like mm-hmm. food is the medicine. Some foods have more medicinal properties, but that line is very blurred. And that's what Asian culture can bring to you. Mm-hmm. And go to cola, which is one of the you know powerful medicinal herbs used in Ayurveda and upheld in TCM. It's also just an herb that like in Sri Lanka, I, pretty, I believe they just sprinkle on salads because it's accessible to them. Your herbs are also weed plants. Right. And they grow easily. Yeah. So they don't have to be seen as this luxury and they shouldn't. Like they should be seen as commodity and there should be more distribution via knowledge. That makes so much sense. So are you for or against goop? <laughs> oh my God, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't even know. I, I think... I'm neutral about Goop. Um, it's a billion-dollar brand, though. Yeah, that that's kind of irking. Um, I don't, like, generally have a lot of hate for any individual institution just because I think I put my upsetness at more, like, structural, bigger structures. But it's useful to be a little bit upset at Goop or such things because then you can derive some solutions, right? You can kind of yeah. poke holes at it. Like, I'm really proud of how our communities and people of color, especially women mm. in that space, have really risen up to, you know, have more voices. And even someone like me who's like, I'm not super comfortable talking. I know I'm on a podcast right now, <laughs> but writing was already, like, pretty, you know, big for me. Um, I think... It's okay to be a little bit upset and to then just absorb as much pain as you can metabolize. Mm. I don't think it's ever useful to absorb more pain than you can do with. Do you think Goop is doing justice in terms of honoring these traditions, their history, knowledge, and originators of these traditions? Maybe like a C. (laughs) <laughs> like they're not they're not great no um but they're not the worst that i've seen mm. and maybe that's just because of their scale like they can't be that bad they're going to get slandered if they do mm. so i don't i'm not saying that they're okay because they're doing it right like maybe it's just you know performative right it's problematic and i don't really have a clear way to do it because I also don't want to take away any work that is trying to help people. They're profiting, but they also are trying to help people. And on some level, customers are willing participants, right? That's such a good point. Consumers are willing participants. What do you think consumers should look out for when they are making these purchases? Are there any parameters or criteria that they should take into consideration before spending money on holistic medicine? Yeah, there definitely is. I think, I know everyone is always going to look at the 
technical benefits like is this organic you know is this like sustainably sourced but i think they should kind of have cultural points in there we do these quick calculations and we don't even realize it but we're already we already have like certain categories that we're measuring like Mm -hmm. you and i i think as women of color we probably already have this like cultural calculator like Mm -hmm. okay how many points Am I like helping my people or yes. like in some way, this marginalized community? And I think it is up to white people to take up more of that like they so really true. should because we already do that. So I'm not worried <laughs> about any person of color. That's beautiful. In the end, this is something that I ask all my guests. So we are going to ask you this. If you were to define America in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? Wow. Um... The hope for freedom. I love it. I love it. Risa, where can people find your products? Is there a website? What is your IG handle so that people can go visit um, and buy your product? Yeah. Um, Innermade is at innermade.com and our Instagram is at Innermade. Thank you so much. This was so good. Thank you. My pleasure. Wow, this was such a brilliant interview. And we are not being gatekeepers here. We want people to experience different cultures, but just be mindful of those practices and honor the originators and try to be more inclusive by bringing people of color into these ecosystems. Take care until next time when we have another brilliant guest.